Well, good morning and welcome to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church. Especially if you're a visitor here today, let me extend a very warm welcome to you. My name is Duncan. I have the pleasure of serving as pastor of the church here, and it's my great privilege to not only welcome you here, but to lead us in worship this morning. And that is what we come to do this morning. We come to worship God together, to hear from God together so that we might worship Him some more together. And um, if you've been in denial, which many of you have been, it's time for you to stop. Christmas really is only two weeks away, and it is the opportunity that the church takes to celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ into the world. But in our country today, and maybe for some of you here today, a significant proportion of people find that Christmas actually has a significantly negative impact upon them. A recent survey found that as many as one in four people found that Christmas time badly affected their mental health. And the main driver was just some of the pressures that come with this season the pressures to spend money that you don't have, the pressures to give time that you you cannot find. And so many of these things, financial pressures, the busyness of the season, are so often self-inflicted wounds that make for an utterly joyless time of year. Well, what we do here we pray and trust will be the opposite of that and will be a help to you to experience the opposite of that. Because Christmas, from the very first Christmas, is proclaimed to us as a time of joy. When the shepherds were out in their fields that first Christmas night, the angel of the Lord appeared to them and said, "'Fear not, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you.'" is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then we're told that the whole multitude of the heavenly host appeared, praising God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. This is the outcome of Jesus' coming, great joy for all the people, peace amongst His people. Well, please do take a seat, and we're going to turn to our Bible reading now in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, if you have a Bible. If not, the verses are printed in the diary that you hopefully received on the way in, so please do follow there. Matthew chapter 2, and this morning we're reading just the first 12 verses. Matthew chapter 2, reading from verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. 
And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you've found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Amen. Our Father, we pray for your help as we turn to these words from your word, we pray that the loudest voice in our ears would be yours. We pray that for ourselves. We pray that for our junior church today. So we ask for your help now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you spotted it as we read those verses, but there is a real tension in the air as you come into Matthew chapter 2. And it surrounds the use of the word king. At the time of Jesus' birth, we're told in verse 1, Herod was the king. But more than that, as Matthew unfolds this bit of history for us, he goes out of his way to make this point. Look at verse 3, when Herod the king heard this. And again, verse 9, the wise men, after listening to the king. Well, now, there's a problem in these verses because there's two people called king. And if you know anything about history, you never get away with having two kings in the same place at the same time. One of them inevitably finds the threat of the other just too much to bear. And that's what unfolds in chapter 2, and it comes to a really grisly end in the second half of chapter 2, which we'll see next week. But here we see the news of Jesus' birth coming to the capital city of Israel and coming in this most unusual way through these wise men from the east. But actually, this teaches us a lot about Jesus. And these verses are calling to us today to bow before the true king. I remember I once congratulated someone on finally retiring. And as soon as I said congratulations, they burst into tears. For them, retirement wasn't good news. And it's funny, isn't it? Because in theory, all of their working life, they had been preparing for this day to come but it was the opposite of what they wanted. Um, 
It's a bit like enthusing with someone about their upcoming wedding day, only to find that they're miserable about the prospect. I'm sure that doesn't happen often, mind you. And for us, when we, when we try to celebrate with someone when they don't think it's something to celebrate about, it is awkward as it comes. It's a painful mistake to make. And for these wise men who have traveled from the East, they make that exact same blunder. They come knocking on Herod's door in Jerusalem. This is more than 2,000 years ago now, and it's as if they have arrived at the door with the balloons that say it's a boy. The first thing they do when they come in the door is they shout, congratulations, where is he? The one who's been born king of the Jews. And it falls utterly flat. No one in Herod's circles was celebrating this news. And in fact, Matthew tells us, doesn't he, that Herod in verse 3, when he heard this, he was troubled, disturbed him, it shook him up. And, you know, though Herod had the title king, and in fact, the Romans even granted Herod the title king of the Jews, he did not actually have any legitimate right to sit on the throne of Israel. He was not descended from the kings. He was a descendant of Esau, not Jacob, if you know anything of the Old Testament. Herod's family were actually incomers to Judaism. And while God called for people to be incomers to Judaism, he had usurped the throne. And as a result, Herod was a man who was never really accepted by the Jews. They never really accepted him as their king. They could see that he was much more interested in being friends with their Roman occupiers than he was in representing the needs of the people. And it led to Herod being a very, very insecure man. He was suspicious of anyone who might have some kind of links to the old royal family. And it was for those sorts of reasons that he had his wife killed, some of his sons killed, just too much of a threat. And so you can imagine when someone comes knocking on the door and says, oh, we hear, we hear the king of the Jews has been born. You imagine what that does to a guy like Herod? It eats him up inside. And Matthew tells us that not just Herod was troubled, verse 3, all Jerusalem was troubled with him. And surely knowing what kind of man Herod was, they knew this news is not a recipe for peaceful times in Jerusalem. And this is the tone that the arrival of King Jesus sets, which is a tone that will continue throughout the rest of the, the Gospels. It is that King Jesus shakes things up. King Jesus shakes things up. The unease in Jerusalem at the birth of Jesus is a foretaste of the sort of response Jesus will receive from his own people. Read through any of the Gospels, you will see that. The values that he spoke about, how the way to greatness was not in achieving wealth or position or power, but was in humility and in service and self-sacrifice. 
His promise that it wasn't the strong and the proud who were blessed, but it was those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn. And even in relationships with others, listen to these words of Jesus. He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. I mean, you could say Jesus shakes things up, right? His very presence is a disturbing thing. And there's a sense in which actually every one of us needs to find Jesus disturbing. He needs to disturb us in some way. I mean, Matthew told us in chapter 1 that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And if that doesn't disturb us in some way, then we've not properly understood it. Read the Gospels, observe the sinless life of Jesus, hear the convicting words of His teaching. Because it's in seeing King Jesus clearly that we would begin to understand why on one occasion one of His disciples would say, get away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Being in the presence of King Jesus shakes things up. We understand our sinfulness. We understand our shortcomings so much more clearly because we see the perfections of Jesus. And when He comes near, it brings our imperfections into stark reality, and it disturbs us. At least it should. Think about how this king would suffer and die on a cross, bearing the penalty that our sins deserve. And that's to be something that disturbs us, something that shakes us up, because it reveals to us just how severe a thing our sin is before God. You look to the cross and you say, actually, this is what my sin looks like. It is dark. It is bloody. It is abandoned. It's desperate. It's disturbing. And yet, in the same way also, we look at the cross and we see Look how great the love of God is for someone like me, that Jesus would endure this for me. The love of Christ shakes things up and needs to disturb us. And there's a detail in chapter 2, which I, I must admit I hadn't really spotted before, which I think adds to this slightly, uh, not slightly, this seriously disturbing effect that Jesus has on us. Just, just look with me at how the language describing Jesus progresses through this chapter. So, so, so look, um, look at the pronouns, okay? You feel like you're back in the English class. Look, look at the pronouns. Verse 1, he is Jesus. Verse 2, he is King of the Jews. Verse 4, he is the Christ. Verse 6, he is the ruler who will shepherd the people of Israel. These are big names, big titles, lofty things that he's come to do. But for the rest of the chapter, there's one pronoun that he gets, the child. Verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, the child, the child, the child. And if you go on to the rest, 
of the chapter six more times. Verse 13, verse 14, verse 20, verse 21. The child, the child, the child, the child. The Lord's strength, the Lord's authority, the Lord's rule comes into the world. All of this power comes in, and it's found in the child, the child, the child. This authoritative voice of God will come from the lips of a poor Galilean with no human authority, no possessions. His way of deliverance will come through the shame of death on a cross. Yes, God does things in the way that only God can do. And He does not make, He does not appeal to our most basic human senses that bigger is better, stronger is stronger. God does the opposite of all of that. His strength is seen in all of these weak things, seemingly weak things. And it is to shake us up. King Jesus shakes things up. And he does that so that we would come to him in faith. And when we do that, life never quite looks the same again. You know, the, the shaking up continues. It's not just that hey, we're a little bit unsettled and then we get it all sorted out. No, life is turned on its head. When we come to Jesus and we come to him in faith, then something is turned upside down within us or perhaps turned the right way up. He grants us new desires, new ambitions, new priorities for our time, for our energy, for our resources. And I suppose the question would come to us, if you trust in Jesus today, just how shaken up has life been by Him? I mean, just giving us a different habit to do between 11 and 12, 15 on a Sunday is not really the definition of life shaken up, friends, is it? What has it meant for us to know this King Jesus who shakes everything up, reorders things according to His principles, according to His rule? Well, these wise men in Matthew 2, they set an important tone here for us. Um, the words which you'll have heard perhaps is they're, they're literally magi. Uh, which doesn't really explain much for us. Here's the things we're pretty sure of. They are not Jews. They're not descended from the, the tribes of Jacob. They don't come from the lineage of Abraham even. They don't adhere to the Jewish religion. They are, they are Gentiles. They are outsiders, if you like. We can't be sure where they come from. Some people look at those three gifts that they bring, and they think that perhaps Arabia is the likely origin. Some people think modern-day Iraq. There's no way to be sure, and if Matthew had thought that was an important detail, I'm sure he would have included it. In fact, if he thought telling us how many wise men there were was an important detail, he would have included that as well, but he didn't. But think about this. These people come from outside, from far away, and what was the title that, that they gave to Jesus in verse 2? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Sounds like a very narrow title, doesn't it? King of the Jews. But I think deliberately Matthew wants us to see that these earliest of seekers out of the king of the Jews 
were magi from the East. The non-Jews, who everyone assumed were stuck in ignorance and were learning at the outset of Jesus' life here that King Jesus is a king for all nations. King Jesus is a king for all nations. And we can be sure of that because we see that God has gone out of his way to lead these men here, hasn't he? Four times in our passage, we're specifically told about the star. Four times that's mentioned. The wise men have traveled possibly hundreds of miles to find the king of the Jews. And they have done so in response to a sign that God has given them. The star that appeared that somehow they understood to mean that the Jewish Messiah had arrived. And there's many theories about that, which I'm not an expert on at all. Some think it's an alignment of planets and so on. But I think what we are definitely to see is that God's hand is at work here. And while Herod and Jerusalem respond to the news with frozen nervousness, these men, these foreigners, these outsiders, they know what to do. The initial star had prompted them to travel to Jerusalem, uh, but their continued resolve to find the child is rewarded by the star reappearing. And it's hard, the appearing, disappearing, reappearing star, it's hard not to conclude that God is at work here, right? God is behind this phenomenon because this is God's promised king who has arrived. He puts this sign in place, but for whom? For the outsider, for the foreigner. And Matthew is especially concerned as he writes his gospel to show us that Jesus' coming is the fulfillment of Scripture. And in these opening couple of chapters, he has several passages from the Old Testament that he quotes to just show the significance of the coming of Jesus, how it is all as God has said it would be. But even in the gifts that are brought, and we'll say a little bit more on them later, we see God's hand at work. Some 700 years before this, the prophet Isaiah wrote about the glorious future that was in store for God's people. And it was all wrapped up in the promised servant whom God would send. And in Isaiah 60, we read, Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn, and all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense, and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. People will travel from outside to Israel, bearing gold and incense, proclaiming the praise of the Lord. This, this rich and glorious future that was promised to God's people, Matthew wants us to see it is being fulfilled right here. And it's being fulfilled in Jesus Christ himself. He is the fulfillment of all of Israel's history. And the nations here, in this very small way to start, they travel to greet him and to honor him. And so Jesus' title of King of the Jews is no, it's no narrow thing. King Jesus is a king for all nations, for all sorts of people, however, un, however unlikely a candidate they might seem to us on the outside. And that is to give us great hope, to give us great encouragement. 
Well, there are people perhaps who you know that have been resistant to King Jesus for as long as you've known them. And you almost think, well, there's not really much point in sharing this with him or with her. They've heard it all before. Well, God is doing more than we realize. And in fact, even before anyone knew it, these wise men were on their way to meet King Jesus. And even those who were seemingly on the inside hadn't even known he was born yet. This is, this is God's heart to draw people from all sorts of places to his son. And we must hold him out in that open-handed way that simply we're drawing people to him. I'm not trying to persuade them to come to me or to come to this, but to come to him. For he is the king for all nations. And we cannot miss this thing, last of all, this passage shows us that King Jesus must be worshipped. King Jesus shakes things up. King Jesus is a king for all nations, and King Jesus must be worshipped. The Magi come with that purpose in view, don't they? Verse 2, they say, we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to make a treaty with him, get a loan from him, get a bit of help from him in some other way. No, we have come to worship him. That's why they've come. And there's a valuable lesson on what is and what is not worship of King Jesus here in these verses as well, because there is a huge tragedy unfolds among the counselors of King Herod. We find here that knowledge alone is not worship. Knowledge alone is not worship, when the Magi ask about the one who was born King of the Jews, Herod immediately knows what they're talking about. You see that in verse 4, on the back of the Magi saying, well, where is he? He asks the, the religious top brass about the Christ. He knows what they're talking about. He asks, where, where, where does it say he's to be born? The man knows this is who they're waiting for. And more than that, these religious men whom he asks they don't say, oh, let us go and consult the records. We'll need to do some research on this. They know the answer already. They have it to hand. They answer him. Verse 5, in Bethlehem of Judea. And more than that, folks, they can quote the Scripture from Micah chapter 5 to back it up. They have all of this knowledge at their fingertips. And they'd understood it accurately. The Messiah was born in Bethlehem. And yet, this knowledge has not gone nearly far enough. Knowing the facts and the details about King Jesus is necessary, it is important, but King Jesus must be worshipped. And passing a, passing a Bible quiz is not the same as worshipping King Jesus. I mean, let's let this sink in for a moment here. You can read just think about what these guys have done. You could read and digest an ancient prophecy in a slightly obscure book amongst the minor prophets of the Old Testament, and you could understand that content without needing any spiritual insight. Certainly this detail here, you could understand it, but it's where it goes after that that really matters. I mean, you can hear me tell you that Jesus Christ is God, come as a man, 
born of a virgin, come to be the Savior of the world, that His death on the cross and His resurrection from the dead are all you need to be right with God. You can understand the words that I say. In fact, you might even nod your head in agreement. But if it doesn't go beyond that to trusting Jesus, then what is it for? What does it accomplish? To trusting Jesus, possessing Jesus, worshiping Jesus. Without that, what difference has it made? And the wise men give a glimpse of what worshiping Jesus looks like. They do not stop until they find Him. They don't stop. And they humble themselves before Him. Look at that in verse 11. Uh, Remember, Matthew's been telling us it's the child, the child, the child, and here they go, and they fall down before Him, and they worship. They see beyond the weakness, physically speaking, and they embrace Him. They bring their treasures to Him. And at the very least, we are to see in these treasures that these are the most valuable commodities they could bring. I think that's probably their biggest significance. These are the most valuable commodities they could bring. Gold has been precious to us for as long as we've known about it. Frankincense was an expensive perfume burned in worship to carry the prayers up to God. And myrrh is a similar kind of thing to frankincense, used as a perfume. Each of these items were widely traded and very, very valuable. And on that basis, Alone, they are gifts that are fit for King Jesus. They bring the most valuable commodities they can put their hands upon, and they give it to Jesus. Here is a picture of what it is to believe in Jesus, not just to say, oh, I think all of that is true, but to trust and to trust with your most precious things, and the most precious thing that you have is your own soul to entrust that to Jesus, to be able to say, he's my Jesus who died for me, and to entrust your life to him. The thing is, where that leads us, when we're confronted with that kind of message about King Jesus, we end up with the sort of tension that there is in Matthew chapter 2. Because actually for us in our own hearts, when we hear the news about Jesus, then suddenly there are two kings in town. And one of those kings has to go. My own will, my own heart, my own natural desires, they want to be king. And the world in which we're living in is telling us all the time that the only way to be happy in this world is to let those things be king. But I'm here to tell you, if that's you, you've got the wrong king. Got the wrong king. It's got no right to assert its authority on the throne of your life. And most people, when they're presented with these two kings, will very quickly seek to put Jesus away much like we'll see Herod do in the next part of chapter 2. They hire some kind of um, uh, intellectual eradication scheme to just get him out of my thoughts, get him away from my mind. But when we do that, we make the biggest mistake we could ever make. 
King Jesus. He shakes things up. He's a king for all nations. He is a king who must be worshipped. And he stands before us today. Will you come and entrust yourself to this king? Amen.